0: From Amos nine, eleven through fifteen. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of the old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, we are uh, continuing our sermon series uh, going through primarily um, uh, minor prophetical works uh, of the Old Testament and uh, this morning we come uh, to the book of Amos and uh, whereas we have spent most of our time thus far uh, looking at Prophets uh, who were ministering to the uh, southern kingdom uh, of Judah. Amos uh, is is a although he grew up in the southern kingdom, he has been called to be a minister, to be a preacher, to be a prophet to the northern kingdom, Israel. And here we are, uh, pretty deep into this series uh, on the prophets. And we have seen and heard God's response uh, to his people's waywardness and covenant failures. Uh, We have seen him give instructions to his own people on how to respond to their waywardness and covenant unfaithfulness. We've even seen individual prophets' response and interaction with Yahweh to all of this. But to date, we have actually only briefly and fairly quick in quick passing engaged the specifics of God's people's waywardness. We have mainly spoken generally of their rebellion and their failures and haven't really interacted that extensively with the actual, with the specific ways that God's people had not lived as his own faithful treasured possession and how they have failed to be a light to the nations. This morning we're actually going to engage something very specifically that most of the prophets and especially Amos are very concerned about among the people of God. So with that in mind will you pray with me one more time and ask for God's presence as we engage with this his word. Heavenly Father we do now come into this place however we find ourselves and We ask that you would meet with us here. Um, Whatever is necessary for your spirit to connect words of eternal life with our hearts and our minds and our lives, I pray that you would do so now. So use me, move around me, move in spite of me, but at the end of the time together, may we know that we genuinely have heard from the living eternal God with these your words, by your prophet Amos, written thousands of years ago. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the, uh, the book of Amos, nine chapters, uh, opens uh, the first chapter, almost the first two chapters, with God first declaring, unlike most other prophets, first declaring, his impending judgment that he is going to bring on the other nations outside of his own people. Whereas most of the prophets of the Old Testament attention is spent to God's people, Amos begins by recounting God's proclamation of impending judgment on seven specific nation states that are encircling God's people, Israel and Palestine, ancient Near Eastern world and it's enough for an israelite and i'm sure amos is aware of this and thinking this as he's writing this proclaiming this it's enough for an israelite to be tempted to develop a sense of superiority and self-righteousness and to think at least if only if only for a moment well they deserve it <laughs> they deserve to hear that at least we're not like that at least I'm not that bad. But then God's and then Amos's focus changes with this introduction from the nation states around Israel to Israel herself. And from that point until the passage that was read just a moment ago, we see a lar- we see largely painted a very grim picture of what is on the horizon for Israel as a result of their unfaithfulness. Listen to just a little sample from a few passages. In chapter 2, Amos writes, this is what it's going to be like. Flight shall perish from the even the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength. The mighty shall not be able to save his life. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Chapter three, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Chapter five, in all the squares there will be wailing and they shall call the farmers to mourning and in all the vineyards there there shall be wailing. It is a dark portrait of what waits on Israel's horizon. And those few passages are just a sample (laughs) of the book of Hamas. But we should note here and be clear that that despite the dark picture of pending judgment that Amos has painted, it is not simply the case that God has all of a sudden flown off the handle. (laughs) For years and years, actually, He has extended mercy and patience and enacted less invasive modes of discipline and warning to His people. Again, in chapter 4, God recounts multiple ways that he has again and again tried to get his people's attention in the past with the goal of seeing them be humbled and repent before him and to be fully restored. And again and again, there is a, re- there is a refrain that's repeated in chapter 4, and yet you did not return to me. And yet you did not return to me. In other words, we didn't get here to Amos his proclamation, his prophetical work overnight, (laughs) or after one little unfaithful misstep. And this isn't simply a divine overreaction taken out on a wayward child from out of nowhere. God is not like us who, because of a lack of sleep or simply we're having a bad day, we We come home and we only overreact and take out our frustrations on those closest to us for the slightest misstep on their part. It's not what's happening. So what are the issues? (laughs) What has caused such a dire response by God to his people? What has he been calling them back specifically from again and again only to be spurned again and again by his people? Well, it's an area of great concern that grieves the heart of Yahweh that all of his prophets at least allude to at some point in their prophecies. For Amos, however, it comes front and center. (laughs) Once again, here just a sample. Chapter 2, speaking of God's people, this is what they do. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They are those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Chapter 4, they oppress the poor. They crush the needy. Chapter 5, they trample on the poor. And then God adds, I know how many are your transgressions, how great your sins are, you who afflict the righteous, who wrongfully and unjustly take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Furthermore, in chapter 6, Amos says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but are not at all grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You see, many in Israel had become rich and wealthy by unjust exploitation off the backs of poor members of God's people among them. And they had gotten so comfortable in their lives, a spiritual complacency and pride had sprung up and grown unchallenged among themselves that they had become numb and indifferent to the plight of the economically vulnerable in their cities. And this was an area that God had given time and time again special attention to in his laws, in the Torah. His instructions were clear that his people were to pursue and ensure justice and fairness for all. For example, Deuteronomy 24, this sums it up well. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner, that is the alien immigrant in your land, or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and I, the Lord Yahweh, your God, redeemed you from there, and that's why I command you to do this and to live this way. Notice how God refers to ensuring the care of the poor and the vulnerable not as charity <laughs> but as justice. As one commentator writes, justice in the Bible includes making right decisions according to God's commands and laws, but it involves more than legal equity. It denotes in particular the fair and just use of power to protect the weak and the powerless. To do justice, in other words, is to work to protect such members of society. So it's not that God somehow is pro-socialist or (laughs) anti-capitalist. We aren't talking about a comparison of economic systems here. We're talking about a heart posture that God intrinsically has towards those who have far less access to the things that help grant an individual status and recognition in this fallen world. And who are therefore vulnerable and exposed to the whims of those in power. God's concern and the resulting instruction for his people to care for the economically and socially vulnerable is because all of humanity, every human being is created in his image and all are designed to fully reflect his glory in being able to justly and creatively take dominion over God's creation. In other words the disenfranchised are not simply (laughs) in a situation where their life is more difficult and they're more vulnerable to shifting economic seasons and downturns, though of course they absolutely are, but also because their vulnerabilities hinder them from fully living out what it is to reflect God's creative governing image. In Matthew 26 Jesus quotes another part of Deuteronomy and says something that often gets mischaracterized. You might recall the passage where he says, finishing in a discussion with his disciples, the poor will always be with you. Remember this passage? The poor will always be with you. And often the wrong implication drawn from that is that Jesus is suggesting that God's people don't have a responsibility to make care for the poor a priority but that's not at all what he can be saying there. Because Jesus would have had the entire passage in Deuteronomy in mind when he said what he did. And if we continue in that passage that he's quoting from Deuteronomy, where it says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land, God's next words to his people are, therefore, therefore, I command you that you shall shall open wide your hand to your brother, your sister, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Because the poor is there, open your hand widely. Yes, we live in a fallen, broken world. That is a theological truth and a phenomenological reality, but nevertheless, And perhaps we'd do better to say because of that reality, God intends for the fallenness of this life to actually be an arena for us as his people to move into action and out of complacency, complicity, or neglect. But there's another issue that God is greatly concerned about, according to Amos. You see, Israel's worship of God has also been affected. Hear what Amos says in chapter 8. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new, new moon be over that we may sell grain again? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. It had gotten so bad. That worship of Yahweh was getting in the way of people's opportunities to exploit the hardships of others in order to increase their bottom line and ensure their lives of ease. But it gets worse. <laughs> because in chapter 5, speaking to their worship, God says, because of all of this, I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And some, according to Amos, Israel's worship had become a farce. God never intended for his people to just show up and go through the motion, just walk through the aspects of worship and then go home and the celebration of Yahweh being their creator and their redeemer to have no impact on their relationships in everyday life. And so neglecting the needs of the poor and the disenfranchised among them and then showing up and worshiping as if everything was fine was absolutely repugnant to their God. And that shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't surprise us. Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Sum it all up, Jesus. Sum up the entire law. What is the greatest commandment? And his response was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul, with all your mind. In other words, to love God is to fully worship him with every part of your being. But Jesus didn't stop there. Although he was only asked for the greatest commandment, Jesus continues. And the second is like the first. Love your neighbor just as you love and essentially care for yourself. Jesus is asked, asked for one, the greatest, and he responds with two. And by doing so, he links them. And so it is a foreign thought. Not only the biblical prophets, authors, Jesus himself, that love for and worship to our God can be done while ignoring the needs of our neighbor. It's a regular theme and assumption, not just in the Old Testament, but throughout the entire Bible. One example in the New Testament, James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things they need for their body. (laughs) What good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, James would argue that one cannot claim they have faith in God. They can't claim they have given their full allegiance and worship to God if they ignore the needs of those around them. And that brings us finally to the specific passage that was read earlier. And here we finally find some amazingly hopeful good news because at the end of the day the truth is god's discipline of his own people is never the last word god's discipline is always a means of refining his people refining us like a refining fire removes the dross and impurities from liquefied precious metals and so Amos here writes of a more glorious future than the impending temporary time of discipline and exile that Israel's about to face. It was a promise that Amos intended for God's people to take with them into exile and while there to remember to meditate upon the promise and to allow God's spirit through the words transform their hearts and give them hope for their future. Listen again. And hear these words that follow the pending pestilence and loss and sorrow Israel was about to face. Hear these words again and imagine Israel in the scenario they're about to be in. God says, in that day, there's a day coming. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. In fact, behold, the days are coming when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards. They shall drink their wine. They shall make gardens. They shall eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord Yahweh your God. Amos is saying, is promising a day is coming that although right now the noble and just and benevolent Davidic kingship has been threatened, not simply because of the divided kingdom, but because of the waverness of God's people, God is promising a day is coming when he's going to restore the booth of David, that is his dwelling place, which had fallen. It's a messianic promise that God will raise up a greater King David who is God's New Testament people, we now know to be the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that Jesus himself would open his ministry in Luke 4, using a passage from another prophet to affirm his calling, his mission, and his ministry. A a, a reading by Jesus that actually ends up almost getting him killed right off the bat when he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And why? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Later, when John was in prison, John the Baptist, he sent word to Jesus, (laughs) saying with his disciples, John's disciples, are you the one are you this one that Amos promised, or should we expect another? And immediately we're told that Jesus laid hands on the sick and the infirm around him and then told his, John's disciples to go back and say, tell him what you have seen. The lame walk, the blind see, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus saw himself fulfilling this, and therefore the, becoming the true king, son of David, the Messiah. Now, of course, absolutely, when Jesus quotes from Isaiah, of course, there are moral and spiritual implications in that passage, to be sure, no doubt. (laughs) But not only spiritual implications. You see, God's ultimate goal is not only the saving of individual souls, not only, (laughs) but rather a complete new creation under the reign of the son of David par excellence, Jesus Christ. And therefore, the atonement of his people's sins, yes, was fundamentally and eternally necessary in order for God to re-reconcile the relationship that had been lost between him and his creation. the human beings that we had had rebelled and gone our own way, but he reconciled us to himself, that we might be his ambassadors of reconciliation to those around us. And that's why Jesus could say after his death and resurrection, as he's standing on a mountain declaring to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. (laughs) What is he saying there? What is he saying? He's saying all authority, and that must mean he sees himself as having taken up the throne of his father, King David, for there is no more power, authority, or reign that's greater than all. And Jesus says it's all mine. Amos' words begin to find fulfillment through Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, and even now, Jesus claims to be continuing to be making all things new as the firstborn of his new of this new creation and one day all things will ultimately be put under his reign and when that happens there will be justice for all and all will flourish and when that happens the entire world will see as Amos puts it and later Martin Luther King also put it and longed for that day we will see justice rolling down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. At the end of the day, we who celebrate a faith tradition that has expressed and emphasized the graciousness of a sovereign God towards a fallen, sinful people like us, when you and I have nothing on our own to allow us the ability to prove to him that we are deserving of or the ability to earn his kindness or f- favor. We are completely vulnerable before God. And yet, he condescends and comes for us and rescues us and saves us sheerly by his good grace. We are the ones that all the more have the basis and motivation for striving for justice among the vulnerable, even among us here in urban Madison. And again, so this is vitally clear, that I am not misheard. (laughs) This is never something engaging in the complexities of the injustices that are often around us is never a way to try to earn God's favor. (laughs) That is not the point. Rather, it's a means of a grateful and faithful response to his redeeming work. In our lives as Paul says for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich Paul is telling the Corinthians that in the midst of asking for their financial help for the issues that he's dealing with on his missionary journey and is reminding them that Jesus himself identifies with us makes himself vulnerable fully exposed goes experiences poverty and ultimately is put to death unjustly on a cross in order that you and I might be reconciled to our god Res you are in a unique place here in Madison, Wisconsin. You you, you are in a, a culture that prides itself on being among the most progressive in how it does life. And there's much to praise in Madison that genuinely reflects God's good character here. But the opportunities remain. Madison is not ahead of the curve when it comes to justice for all. In fact, percentage-wise, I noticed this week that the poverty rate in Madison is 30% higher here than the national average. Now, that's not unusual necessarily for an urban area. But it is a reality that God cares about and where there's an opportunity for God's people to address And so, ResPress, your vision is to be a blessing to university and urban Madison. Urban is where the poor gathers, urban is where the most vulnerable live. And so, I offer this this morning not at all as a critique of (laughs) ResPress. I am not drawing any comparisons from Israel to ResPress. Rather, my design, my goal was to further reinforce, further inspire that loving your neighbor in this city has great foundation in God's word and in his very character. You have reflected this in many, many ways, even the last few weeks. I I think this is now the third meal train that's been set up online in, in like six weeks, and you're still providing. You're still providing for the needs of those among you. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. And to that I say, keep going. Keep going. As God has cared for and remained faithful to you, in a vulnerable time as a church, when you didn't have a senior pastor, now you've been blessed with a senior pastor. He and his family are here. And now that they are, I challenge you now, Resprez, look up and see where God now might be providing opportunities more specifically and intentionally to be a blessing to those in need around you in Madison. Uh, a few months ago, I ended a sermon um, using a song from someone that I, I had never quoted before in a sermon before, and I would have never predicted I would have quoted at any point in a sermon. And that was Taylor Swift. Well, she's making it into this sermon as well. Because did you see what happened this last, I think it was this last week, right? When it was reported. <laughs> As her, is it the ERA's uh, tour that's coming to a close? At the end of the tour, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's, it's customary uh, for, a, for, a, for a celebrity to provide bonuses for, for your workers and people that are involved and the crew, so on and so forth. Have you heard this story? Taylor Swift and her father get together and they decide to write a check for all of her truck drivers for $100,000 as a bonus. When, 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 the, when the director of her campaign was asked, how many is this, what does this mean? <laughs> he said, I don't know the exact numbers, but there were at least 50 that would have received a six figure check as a bonus. When it's customary to give your truck drivers, your, the people that set up, the setup crew, a bonus at the end of a of a tour like this, I guess of between five and ten thousand dollars. She hand wrote a note to every person she gave a check to and put it in the envelope and gave it to them. And apparently as they were handing out the envelopes, <laughs> the 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 workers were receiving the checks and you know they didn't want to look obvious, but they're curious. You know, I mean they're in the room and Taylor there, her father's there, and Apparently, some of them were kind of, you know, were looking in the envelope. You know, one guy was like, oh, wow, $1,000. And the guy sitting sit next to him said, no, no, no I think it's $10,000. <laughs> Come to find out, no, it was $100,000. Now, <laughs> that's admirable. Because it's a beautiful picture of how God intends for His people to live out the generosity that He gives towards us through His Son, Jesus Christ. You and I may not have $100,000 or $500,000 checks to write out to those people that we want to thank, but there are other ways. And I would, I would encourage you, Res Pres, in this next season, get creative. What does it look like to love your neighbor? What does it look like to bless University and Urban Madison? May God go with you and bless you, encourage you, and continue to build you up, that you might continue to be a light in Madison, Wisconsin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do give you thanks that it is out of was out of your generous grace that you saw us in our vulnerability spiritually and moved in and did what we would never be able to do for ourselves, that Jesus, you who were rich became poor, that we might know the great riches of our Heavenly Father. May you continue, I pray, to bless and encourage this congregation, this little outpost of your kingdom, Jesus, that is seeking to live under your reign as the true king, the son of David par excellence, Jesus, I pray, grant this congregation encouragement and grace and courage and humility to be a blessing, to be a light to Madison as you have called them to be. And they have said, this is what we will be. Jesus, go with them, be faithful, remain faithful to them in this work. I pray for your sake, amen.